Setting all that aside about whether you did something wrong or not, if you're a Liechtenstein fan or a Liechtenstein scholar, how can you understand Liechtenstein without understanding these artists? I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. When you hear the name Roy Lichtenstein, a style immediately comes to mind. In the early 1960s, Lichtenstein's use of comic books as an inspiration for his brightly colored pop art painting was groundbreaking and even shocking. Today, he is one of the most instantly recognizable and widely known of all painters. And yet, a quarter century after Roy Lichtenstein's death, the subject of his source material is unexpectedly a hot topic again. Back in the 1960s, Lichtenstein's painting sold for thousands of dollars. In 1995, just a few years before he died, his painting, Nurse, sold at auction for $1.7 million. And then in 2015, the same painting came to auction again. This time, it sold for $95 million, making it one of the most expensive paintings in the world. Marketing that sale, Christie's Auction House said that the imagery in Nurse was drawn from what it called a comic romance novel of the early 1960s. What the auction house did not mention was the actual person who drew the original panel Lichtenstein had used as source material for that painting, the Golden Age comic artist Arthur Petty. And in the world of comic art, this lack of respect for Lichtenstein's sources is a big, big deal. In museums, Lichtenstein's status may be unquestionable, but crossover into the parallel universe of comic art and Lichtenstein's status is viewed as a symbol of the disrespect to comics as an art form, and the man himself is seen as a thief who copied hardworking artists without even bothering to credit them by name. Instead of healing over time, this particular rift seems to have only become more inflamed as Lichtenstein's stock has soared. Some of the most famous voices in comics, from Dave Gibbons, the artist behind the groundbreaking graphic novel Watchmen, to Art Spiegelman, the Pulitzer Prize winning creator of Mouse, to Neil Gaiman, writer of the legendary comic series The Sandman, have all been outspoken and blasting museums for failing to credit the unique voices of the comic book artists who inspired Roy Lichtenstein. The story of the many meanings of Roy Lichtenstein is a story of the shifting relations between museum art and comic culture, of money, morality, and the law, and of how meaning in art is always shifting. Or at least, that's what I took away from a new streaming documentary, Wham Blam, Roy Lichtenstein and the Art of Appropriation. I thought it was such interesting material that I called up the film's director, James L. Hussey, to talk about the issues it raised. Well, James Hussey, thanks for joining us here on The Art Angle. Hey, thanks for having me. Where are you calling from today? I'm calling from my home in Arlington, Virginia. That's uh, right across the river from Washington, D.C. So you have just put out this documentary, Wham Blam, Roy Lichtenstein and the Art of Appropriation. Clearly, this has been a project I've been working on for quite some time. Tell me about your background and how you came to make this film. My chief career has been focused on working in politics, specifically mass fundraising, direct marketing fundraising where we bring in lots of contributions across millions of people. I've been doing that for almost four decades. I got into the documentary field probably as a midlife crisis change. I became the executive director of a uh, film that came out in 2017 called King of the Underdogs, which was about the Oscar-winning director, John G. Abelson. He won the Oscar for Rocky. 
He's your favorite director that you've never heard of. He also did The Karate Kid, a lot of the top grossing films of the 70s and 80s. And I really enjoyed the process. It was like receiving a master's degree in filmmaking. I learned how you can make a film. I realized the technology was relatively inexpensive. And really anyone can make a documentary these days if they set their mind to it with the tools that they have even on their phones. And clearly this particular subject was something that caught your eye or was something that fired your imagination or was a labor of love. How long were you working on this film? I worked on it for eight years. I started in early 2015. The project started when I noticed an article on Gizmodo io9, and it was about Russ Heath, a comic artist. He wrote this piece about how he believed he had been ripped off by Roy Lichtenstein. And this caught my eye because as a child, I was a comic books fan. In 1973, I earned a quarter working at my family's grocery store in a small town in Mississippi. And I asked my dad what I could buy for a quarter. And he suggested I go across the street to uh, the pharmacy and buy a comic. Back then, comics were only 20 cents. And I bought a Sergeant Rock comic which I still have. I held on to every comic I ever bought. But, you know, this comic really made a big difference in my life. It was something that turned me on to reading, something that turned me on to art that I enjoyed. Also, I was a history buff, so it really fed this interest in history because this is based on American soldiers fighting in World War II. And it featured this beautiful art that happened to be by an artist named Russ Heath. And Russ Heath, as a child, became my favorite comic book artist. He worked in a very realistic style. His work was much more detailed than the typical comic artist. And I really fell in love with his work. And I set all that aside in high school. But as I got older, I also developed an interest in the fine arts. I've spent lots of time in galleries. I've spent lots of time reading biographies, really enjoying art and collecting art. During that time, I developed a love for Roy Lichtenstein's art, probably because it harkened back to those old days of the comic book art. So when I saw this article in 2015, first of all, it caught my attention because I had not heard Russ Heath's name in 30-something years. Meanwhile, I'm also a huge fan of Roy Lichtenstein. So it definitely attracted my attention. And at the time, I knew Roy Lichtenstein was an appropriative artist. But I thought he was just appropriating the comic book style. I had not studied him that closely. By reading this article, I realized that he was appropriating actual panels out of comic books. And this piqued my interest. I did a little bit more research and found out within the comic book community, this is a controversial subject. This is a situation where there really are just two communities that are almost not aware or not able to see how this same artist is seen. Exactly. And it's an emotional response. People in the comic book world are extremely angry. I first became aware of the kind of deep symbolic importance that Lichtenstein holds as a symbol of the disrespect paid to comic book creators just a couple of years ago in 2021 when Neil Gaiman, who's the famous writer of Sandman and other things, visited the Museum of Modern Art and he tweeted out just outrage that MoMA had on the label for this very famous Lichtenstein painting, Drowning Girl, that they didn't mention the creator, Tony Abruzzo, of the original 
artwork. And even to add insult to injury, misidentified the name of the title of the comic book that it had come from. They're angry about several things. One, they're angry with Lichtenstein in the first place, that he so closely appropriated these images. And as you notice, I'm having to really watch my language because everybody's using different terminology. I'm sticking with appropriation, which is generally the term used within the arts world. (laughs) They use much more crass words. In your film, Dave Gibbons, the artist who's famous for Watchmen, a very famous comic book from the 1980s that really, in some ways, the comic book that made people really take the idea of graphic novels for adults in the United States seriously. He says, basically, appropriation is just a fancy name for theft. Right, exactly. At the same time, I don't take that hardline definition because I believe appropriation is a central part of the uh, artistic process. I believe all the comic artists are also using appropriation in some ways by things that they see and duplicate. The question I'm trying to answer here is at what point does appropriation cross the line from being an influence to being plagiarism? And that's a very difficult thing. It's in the eyes of the beholder. I work here in Washington, D.C., so I always see a lot of political analogies. And there was that famous Supreme Court case, I think, back in the 1960s about the definition of porn. One of the judges said his definition was, I know it when I see it, which is not a hard and fast rule about defining such a thing. And I think plagiarism often kind of is in that same category. One person may think it's plagiarism, another person doesn't. It's a difficult argument, and there's no hard, fast answer. Well, I think maybe it would help now to kind of rewind the tape because your film is about appropriation and comic book artists and their standing in the world, but it does home in on Lichtenstein's work. And I tend to agree with you. Although I learned about his art and I'm familiar with his art as having this immediately recognizable look, like you know a Lichtenstein painting when you see it, he's the guy who does cartoon panels. But I'm not sure that I think that I would have known that he was referencing real material. I'm not sure that I was taught or have given a great deal of thought to what those sources were. So you go into this a little bit in the documentary, but what's the consensus about his working process? Well, as far as his working process and people's knowledge of his appropriation, I think people in the fine arts community are more aware that this is more exact appropriation. I think the public, when they go to see a Lichtenstein work in a museum or they see it in a book or they go to a special exhibit, there's very little context there. There's almost never a description on the card next to the painting saying, original source, our army at war comic, 1962, drawn by Russ Heath. Well, that's partly because Lichtenstein himself, he didn't exactly foreground his sources, right? No, he made no secret that he was appropriating and from panels. You would see in some of the footage you see from him in the early 60s, you will see them taped up on the wall, cut out of the comic, or thrown around on the floor or in his desk. But he never went out this way to say, this painting is based on this piece of work by this artist. And I think if he had done that, we would not be talking today because I think most of the comic artists and their fans are just seeking acknowledgement. And, you know, I think there's some validity to that because 
within the arts community, there are precedents for identifying when an artist has appropriated another artist's image. I'm here in D.C., so I go to the National Gallery a great deal. And I was there in the fall, and I saw this wonderful Frank Stella painting, this large, dark, dramatic painting called Arundel Castle. It was done in 1959, but next to it was a small version of it, just maybe a fourth or a fifth of the size. And it was done by the appropriative artist Sturdivant. And it was called Study for Stella's Arundel Castle. So it was obvious that they felt that, one, Stella's name had to be mentioned in the appropriated piece, giving credit to the original source. They also hung them side by side to show this is an appropriative piece of this painting. And I think that was done because Frank Stella is a major figure within the fine arts community, I think had not included Stella's name or attribution in there. He would have never displayed it. The National Gallery certainly would not have displayed it out of that context because out of that context, it would be viewed as a purely original piece if you're unaware of the first piece. I just looked quickly in the database for the National Gallery. You know, there's Jasper Johns after Hans Holbein. There's photographer Carrie May Weems did a piece after Monet, and they're given that credit because they're respected high artists. However, Lichtenstein and the museums that display his work and the biographers that write about him do not believe these original comic artists are due the same level of respect. And that's something that really gripes those artists. And I do think they have a valid complaint there. It's worth pointing out as context that this conversation about the status of comic books as art has changed a great deal in the intervening years. I mean, what was the status of comic books in the early 60s, 1962, and Roy Lichtenstein has his big pop art breakthrough? You know, they were viewed as lower-end art. These were things you bought on the newsstand, on the street. And his kids' stuff. It is way before the alternative comic books movement. Exactly. And often they were unsigned. They were not given a lot of respect. That respect was something that built over time. It's gone from being considered a very low-grade form of art to actually being one of the dominant forms today. I mean, you can't you know, I'm not a fan of the Marvel films, but, you know, you can't go to the theater without seeing a Marvel film. They're the highest. No, it is culture for sure. Right. You know, the graphic novels, like you mentioned, Dave Gibbons and his work, these are very major sources. You can argue it's become one of the dominant forms of art. So it has changed over time. For the people who complain about this, I think there are two tiers of complaints. One starts originally with Lichtenstein. And I do think you can say he was insensitive to those artists, that he should have given more credit. Like I said, if he had just simply cited his source, I don't think we would have any complaints today. I think you could say that he was not just insensitive to the subject matter, that the nature of the works as kind of like almost untouchable was part of the kind of shock factor of those first works, that he literally said he was trying to make something that was completely repellent. To people because this was a time of abstract art was still the dominant style and anything figurative, let alone comic books, was considered beneath seriousness. That's one of the other things that really griped the comic artists because 
like you said, it was shocking in that context. And, you know, some people viewed it as ugly or not attractive. But I think the reality is a lot of people did find them attractive. I think they found them dynamic. I think they loved the color choices. You know, when you walk into a gallery and see a Roy Lichtenstein piece, it pops. I actually think one of the participants in the film said his words for Lichtenstein's goal was basically to present this turd on a pedestal. In other words, <laughs> look at this ugly thing and I've elevated it to yeah. something of beauty. And so there's a lot of gripes on that end that maybe people do view it, at least initially in the 60s, as ironic and ugly and it's been put in this new context. So that's one of the major complaints about Lichtenstein. However, I do think there's an argument that he should be you know, at least forgiven for some of that because the appropriative scene, at least as part of the pop art movement, that was a new thing. They were just developing the ground rules, right? And comic art was not considered a major form at the time. That's why I say he was insensitive. I think he should have thought about that. I think he should have given credit. This is an ongoing problem. This is not just a travesty that happened 60 years ago. It's an ongoing travesty because there is now this very active effort within the art world to actively ignore these comic book artists. There's just no interest in doing research on them or elevating them. And I'm certain I'm going to get some pushback during this with people arguing, oh, they don't deserve it, whatever. And to me, that's my chief complaint, that they are actively being ignored today when they should be recognized. Well, something that your film really makes me think about is the need to think about the meaning of these artworks as this historically unfolding thing. Because I think there's a certain kind of reaction, a little bit of an eye roll from people who are like, this is settled art history. You know, this is like paintings from 1962 that all has been really generative. There's all this artwork that's built on top of that. And these Lichtenstein paintings, maybe they were shocking at first. There's a magazine article from the time that asked the question of Lichtenstein, is this the worst painter in America? But it's like, this is settled art history. How could anyone question that he transformed them in, in terms of scale and in terms of identifying that these images taken out of context could have symbolic power that they don't have on the page. And I agree with all of that to a certain extent, but I also think what is fascinating about your film and this conversation is how it's evolved over time, that the status of both art as a commodity and comic books has changed over time. And that these issues have become aggravated as there's both more and less money at stake, both as these paintings become more expensive. I know that 1990, when Christie's sold Torpedoes Los from 1963, a Lichtenstein's painting, that was a huge event in the comic book press where people were really questioning, you know, why is this going for so much when comic book creators still remain so disrespected? And then at the same time, there's people who grew up with comic books grew up. And in the 1980s, comic books started to be taken much more seriously. And then that raises the question of these artists as actual artists who've left a big cultural impact. I think one of the things that we're seeing in our world today is that there's no such thing as settled history. We're always reevaluating history under our new terms and new ideas. And so this is also a period in which we're doing that a great deal, calling people 
on situations and looking at events in new light. You're hearing this debate across multiple subjects of why can't you just leave the past alone? Why do we have to learn about this in a different way and things like that? And I think that's relevant to this discussion because we are viewing this through a different lens. So I do have a uh, difference of opinion on this being settled history. I think a comparison that your film makes that may be generative for people, although it's an imperfect comparison, is the reconsideration of blues musicians who had their music taken by white artists who made careers off of them. And in this case, it's not the same racial dynamic for the most part, but it is mainly kind of working class artists who were making like $20 a page, making these very dynamic things that then had this huge cultural afterlife. Right, exactly. And as you noted, this has also gained significance over time, not only because comic artists gained more attention, but because back in 1960, Lichtenstein was selling these works for just thousands of dollars. I think the Tate bought Wham! for something like four or 5,000 pounds. I think Wham! was acquired originally for $1,000. So back then it was irritant, but as these artists grew older, they were freelancers. They did not have pension plans. They did not have any type of retirement plans or health insurance. And as they grew older, their circumstances grew more dire, while at the same time, copies of their works are going up into the tens and then hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think their bitterness definitely grew over time as they saw the fruits of their hard work paying off other people, but not them. The uh, conversation about comic book creators, yeah, the 1970s, the creators of Superman famously, you know, sold it for just pennies. The rights to Superman, they were completely cut out by DC, and one of them was working as a delivery man and had to really campaign for creators' rights. And that, once again, inflamed this question about relative value. In terms of the evolving conversation, I think a real key figure is David Barcelo who you interview, he has this project that people might have come upon called Deconstructing Leroy Lichtenstein, which really is a product of the internet, you know? I think it went up in 2000 or something like that. Who is David Barcelo? David Barcelo is a retired art teacher who lives in a rural part of Massachusetts. I don't think he'd be insulted if I say he's slightly eccentric, as many people in the art world are. But he is a huge comics books fan, has been his whole life. And for over 40 years, he has been trying to track down the original sources for all of Lichtenstein's work. It's something he's been obsessed with for uh, four decades. And he has spent so much money and, more importantly, time going through thousands upon thousands of comics looking for each panel that Lichtenstein appropriated from. And as far as I can tell, he has the most complete collection of source materials used by Lichtenstein. I don't believe his own estate really has this kind of information. I think they often don't know which comic a particular painting came from, but David Barslow knows it. It's a pretty impressive act of kind of really grassroots is. art history, really. I mean, or you could maybe call it vigilante art history, depending on how you want to think about it, because he really has done the work that even Lichtenstein 
himself didn't really make time for of like finding right. the original panels that these things are based on. And yeah, you have like professional art historians talking about in your film about, you know, he's done a huge service to the field. What's interesting, a lot of the Liechtenstein historians, I don't believe they like him very much because he's often clashed with them. Oftentimes, when he first publicized his sources, he claims that several Liechtenstein biographers then used his research without attribution to him. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is something. So he's actually very secretive about the research. He has the images posted on his website, Deconstructing Liechtenstein, but he does not tell you which comic it came from. He's very protective of that. The comics that scholars do know about are generally ones found through other sources, and those are relatively few compared to what Barslow has identified, and he claims to identify almost 100%. He thinks he's identified probably 95% or slightly more of those original, and he's still trying to hunt down those last few. It's very impressive work, but people within the art community as a whole, especially those Liechtenstein-affiliated, do not seem to like him. They do not seem to want to give him credit. So interesting, the person that was giving him credit there in the film is not a Liechtenstein biographer, but a Warhol biographer who happened to mention his work in one of his books. I don't think he's under that stigma of having to worry about what the Liechtenstein estate and the Liechtenstein Foundation thinks about it. I think he was willing to speak up and say, this guy's got a gold mine. Although you do talk about in the film a kind of fascinating, am I wrong to call it a cease and desist letter that Barcelona received from the Liechtenstein Foundation itself, which is kind of yes. ironic. Yes. One of the things we discovered in our interviews is that several times the Liechtenstein Foundation has sent out cease and desist legal-like letters to people encouraging them not to pursue whatever they were pursuing. In Barcelona's case, they were telling him he did not have the right to reproduce images of Liechtenstein's works along with comparisons to the comic book companies. It's been interesting to watch the film in front of live audiences during the film festivals. This generally draws lots of laughter because they also decide to defend the copyright of the comic books. That is the most amusing part about it, is the letter that he reads in the film sort of chides him saying, you know, like, you are comparing the original images to the Liechtenstein paintings. And they're not just complaining that he's using the Liechtenstein paintings. They also remind him that the comic book companies own the intellectual rights to the original reference, and you're violating their intellectual property, which is, of course, very funny because Liechtenstein, I really doubt he, that he got a waiver from those intellectual rights holders. Well, right. And I don't think he actively sought the comic book company's approval back in the 60s, as far as I know. I think they just ignored it because at that time, paintings were not worth very much. It just wasn't worth going after him on it. And Russ Heath even gave me a story about how he said he thought the comic book executives were taking all their girlfriends and wives to the galleries to see the Lichtensteins to say, look, what we do is now fine art. So that may have been another reason. What rights do these comic book artists have? There's something called the work-for-hire exception when it comes to intellectual property. General concept of work-for-hire is that a company hires you and you do the work, then they own the work. And back then, that was interpreted very strictly. I've heard stories, I don't know if they're true, but some of the comic book companies on the back of the paychecks 
would have statements saying once you have signed off on this check, you've also signed off all rights to your work. Another bit of history here is that I believe in the 1970s, there's this huge showdown between Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, who created a lot of the Silver Age comic book classics like the Fantastic Four and the Incredible Hulk and the X-Men. And specifically it was over work for hire that they held Jack Kirby's art hostage. He couldn't have his original art back to sell on his own unless he signed a document saying that this was work for hire so that he wouldn't have the legal right to his creations. And I think that that is another thing that changed the way people think about appropriation of this work because that was a very visible part of comic book discourse in this in right, the 70s exactly. and the 80s. Comic book artists today have far more rights than they did back then. They own their original material. I think they receive extra compensation if things are reprinted. But that was definitely another factor that they had to deal with back in the 60s. Well, let's talk about one of the creators you interview in the film. Who is Russ Heath? Russ Heath, as I said, was my favorite childhood artist. He had an extraordinary life. He drew all throughout his childhood to the point that when he was 16 years old, his father took him into a company doing syndicated comic art, I think, for the newspapers. And he was given his first job at 16 in 1942, which actually makes him, if you're into the comic book thing, a golden age comic. So he was one of the last surviving ones because he started there in the early 40s. My guess is a lot of the men had gone off to war, so they were willing to give the 16-year-old a chance. And he did a cartoon called Hammerhead Holly. And so he started at a very young age and was a working artist his whole life. He had a brief stint in the Army. But immediately after he got out, he went to uh, working again. In the late 40s, he worked for Atlas Comics, which was the predecessor of Marvel. Stan Lee hired him, gave him a substantial pay increase from what he had been making in an advertising agency. And he really just steadily worked for the rest of his life after that. And Heath was known for being very exacting in his work. He was known to do two or three weeks' worth of work on a comic that he was only going to get one week of pay on. He was chronically behind on deadlines because he wanted it to be perfect. That also caused conflicts. But his fans are extremely loyal, and they view his work as some of the best comic book work ever done. If you look at some of the images, such as the ones we display in the movie, you'll just see that they're generally quite a bit above the quality than most comic art, at least of the time. I mean, he went to a lot of effort. He would hire photographers to allow him to model poses so that he could get it just right. He was also fascinating. He did lots of other work. He worked at Playboy for a while. His next-door neighbor in the mansion was Shel Silverstein. He was also a professional scuba diver and a ladies' man in his younger years. So he was just a fascinating character, full of humor and full of stories. And even up until his last year or two, he was still at least working on some commissions and actually did work on a comic book as late as 2016. He also did a lot of work in movies, The Rocketeer, and many others doing concepts and things like that. He was very well regarded within his community. He was a very significant comic artist. But... He was not living in the Playboy Mansion when you met him. You no, know, he died no. in 2018. And what were his circumstances when you talked to him? They were not good. And I was shocked when I first visited him in his apartment. He lived in a very small one-bedroom apartment in the valley. 
Los Angeles, Van Nuys, California. And to be frank, it was filthy. He was just sleeping on a mattress, no sheets or anything like that. I promised him I would not film his apartment. So I was not able to demonstrate all the circumstances he was living in. He did allow me to do a little bit of filming around his art desk and of his trophies and things like that. And I was hoping that would convey that he was not living in the best circumstances. He also, that dedication to art, putting in three weeks into a work that only paid one week's pay, he did not have a lot of savings when he got older, which is common among many comic artists because they're generally freelance. You know, he struggled. So he was depending upon charity to pay for his groceries. He had no car, so he had to depend on a volunteer to come get him once a week to take him to his doctor's appointments and things like that. I couldn't help but feel incredibly sorry for him. So all the time I spent with him, I would always bring a bag of groceries. I would take him out on errands. I would try to take him out, let him get a good dinner. He loves steak, so uh, I took him to the Roof's Chris Steakhouse one time, and he just thought that was the most marvelous restaurant he had ever been to. And so I kind of felt like I was giving back to him some of the joy maybe he gave me as a kid. Uh, so I felt good about that, but it was hard to feel good about the circumstances he was living in. It's worth just lingering on a little because, yeah, there's this uh, charity you mentioned called the Hero Initiative, which people in the comic book industry have put together because it's a pretty common, unfortunately, situation for artists of that generation who didn't get any rights to their art. It really is, I think, that contrast between the very secure level of acclaim of the Liechtenstein paintings and the images of kind of carnival of wealth at auctions of people bidding hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes for a Liechtenstein painting and then some of the people who contributed in an uncredited way to what makes those images compelling, even if Liechtenstein, you know, he brings his own energy to the table. But I mean, I really think it's that contrast that is so aggravating to people like Dave Gibbons or Neil Gaiman, who are a champion them. And I think a lot of that reaction is not Liechtenstein's initial appropriation of their work. I think a lot of it has to do with this ongoing disregard for the comic artists. They're actively being ignored. I'm expecting to have pushback to this film with people arguing that they don't deserve to be viewed, which uh, that to me is the most frustrating thing because, look, let's put aside the argument, the question of whether Lichtenstein, what he did was wrong or not. If you're a big fan of Lichtenstein, then to be truthful, I started this as a fan of Lichtenstein. I'm still a fan of Lichtenstein. You can't ignore what he did especially with the Bende dots as a graphic element. You can't escape that. That's everywhere. So he definitely introduced a lot of significant things. However, setting all that aside about whether he did something wrong or not, if you're a Liechtenstein fan or a Liechtenstein scholar, how can you understand Liechtenstein without understanding these artists? This is a huge gap in his biography because the biographers like to focus on his teachers at Ohio State. They like to focus on the other artists and teachers he dealt with at Rutgers when he was there and things like that. And these are obviously people who influence his mind, the way he thinks about things, the way he thinks about art. They influence the way his technical skills. But stylistically, his influences are these artists, the comic book artists. These are his stylistic sources and influences. And with virtually every other artist, 
those original influences are really examined. Can you imagine what would happen if I magically was able to say, guess what? I found a still living artist who influenced Van Gogh. There would be reporters being on his door. There would be museums lying up to do retrospectives of this person's work. There would just be no question if this was a significant event. Well, right now, we're presenting this film saying, here are the living, or at least some of the living, artists who stylistically influenced Liechtenstein, and you can hear crickets on the other side. And that's what I find most disturbing. One of the parts of the documentary, we go to the Weissman Art Museum in Minneapolis to view and to film Girl in Window, which is one of Liechtenstein's largest pieces from that time period. It was displayed at the 1964 World's Fair. And the museum is this beautiful Frank Gehry design building which I suppose cost tens of millions of dollars, it was designed around this Liechtenstein painting. So can you imagine the amount of money and effort that went into this museum? But the director of the museum, at first I was shocked when she did not realize that this piece that is their major holding was actually appropriated from an artist named High Eisman. So I was shocked by that. But I've got to say, over time, I was even more shocked by the total lack of interest in learning the knowledge. There's been no follow-up. Like, who's this high Eisman? Tell us more about him. Is he still living? What is his work like? There's just absolutely no interest because to them, he's insignificant. He's not a high artist. He's not a part of their community. And so that's not worthy of consideration. And to me, that's outrage. You know, one's outrage for the artists because their work is not being recognized. They put a lot of effort into creating these things. But it's also outrageous because it leaves this huge gap in understanding Liechtenstein. You know, one of the things we reveal in this is that High Eisman talks about how being paid $10 a page or $1.66 per panel, you had to work quick. And so he talked about how doing close-ups was the artist's best friend because he could do it in three minutes. That's where you would get the close-up of the eye with the tear. Well, there's the explanation of one of the major elements of Liechtenstein's paintings, and that's an explanation of how it happened. And if his paintings are a discussion on commercialization and the economies of art, well, then that's a highly significant fact that should be talked about and considered. But I do believe ongoing, the museum directors the biographers, I think they're wary of going into this because they fear that maybe this will feed into the dialogue that is works a form of plagiarism or something like that. I think that's one of the reasons they just don't want to discuss it or look at it. I want to throw an idea at you about this conversation, Please. which is someone in your film, I think it's Dave Gibbon, compares Lichtenstein unfavorably to Andy Warhol and says, you know, what Warhol did is clearly transformative. And speaking of the Campbell's Soup works by Warhol says, you know, Campbell's Soup must be laughing all the way to the bank. As in Warhol kind of gave that brand this public presence and this kind of cool and handed it off into art history in a way that, that lives on in a way it might not have otherwise. And they've benefited from that. And isn't there a case to be made that for these comic book artists, even if they do remain relatively invisible, but even your film is part of this process where Lichtenstein, by 
putting this artistic spin and in, in entering them into this artistic conversation has given them a life that a larger energy that can be passed along to those artists. I mean, Russ Heath's, the kind of romance comics and war comics that Lichtenstein concentrated on, they're not generally superhero comics, which is how people think of comics principally now because of the movies. They just don't have much of a presence in our culture. These artists have the potential to pick up some of that energy, even if it hasn't happened yet. Maybe your film is even part of that re-merging the streams of fine art and comic book art or museum art and comic book art. I disagree with that. And I'll tell you why. What Gibbons was referring to with the Campbell Soup camp and Andy Warhol, he basically provided them free billboards in every major museum of the world. You know, you see Campbell Soup cans in people's homes. You see them in virtually every museum. You see them in ads. So his point was that Campbell's, it can be argued, has financially benefited from Warhol's appropriation. You cannot say that about the original comic artists at all. In fact, that's one of the reasons that I'm pushing for this recognition. How could they get validity if they weren't even recognized as the original artists? And they did suffer financially. I'm not saying that if they had been recognized that they would not have suffered, but there is an argument to be made that if they had been recognized, then maybe their work would have had more attention. Maybe they would have had more commissions. But more importantly, there's a major flaw in this argument that a lot goes into whether you view them as victims or not. And they certainly viewed themselves as victims. And let me ask this question, or at least pose this to you. You're a journalist. What if you learned that somebody copied one of your works and then won the Pulitzer for it and you had no credit? What do you say to the black musicians whose work were appropriated by white musicians in the 60s? I mean, should they be told they should just be happy because their music's been highlighted by somebody else? And maybe they should just sit down and be quiet and enjoy that kind of secondary publicity? And I think all of those people would say, no, not at all. These comic artists view themselves very much as victims. Are they victims in a financial sense? I think there are arguments that are against that, especially from a legal viewpoint. But I certainly believe that they have a right to complain about the lack of recognition that their work has got. If you're looking at a Liechtenstein painting, it's very dynamic, like Blam, which is at the Yale Gallery of Art, or Wham, at the Tate Modern, very dynamic paintings. Well, he gained that from the work of these artists who put a lot of effort into their work. I believe they do have a legitimate argument there. And I've really failed to understand why the art world is so resistant to giving them that attention, because I think they deserve it. Well, I think that is a terrific beat to leave it on. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Hey, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And that is it for this week's episode. If you like what you've heard, you can, of course, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we are doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening to us. and See you all next week. 